Special thanks to our podcast sponsors, Brigitte and Bashar Kalai, Hallie Vanderheider, and Sippy and AJ Karana. At Crime Stoppers of Houston, we believe in safety for all, and to achieve that, it's necessary to have balanced conversations where all are represented. Here's where we come together to do just that. Welcome to The Balanced Voice. As the holiday season kicks off, there's a glaring elephant in the room. This year feels blatantly more polarized than years past. In the mix of increased polarization, COVID concerns, and the standard stress many Americans feel around the holidays, seems like it could be a recipe for disaster. In a study by one poll, they found that during the holidays, 56% of people say they have to bite their tongue to avoid arguments with their family, and 64% report that certain conversations with family are simply off limits. Interestingly enough, many psychologists actually discourage shying away from difficult conversations. Today on The Balanced Voice, we welcome Dr. Lauren Pinkston to talk about how she has successfully protected hospitable spaces to virtually wrestle through the tensions of learning and unlearning. Dr. Pinkston is the voice behind the growing Instagram platform, Upwardly Dependent, an assistant professor of business admission at Lipscomb University, and the executive director of Kindred Exchange, a nonprofit with a purpose to provide an alternative to traditional short-term missions that promote sustainability, empathy, and authentic cross-cultural engagement. In today's conversation, Renya and Lauren talk about everything from how Lauren has cultivated a space for respectful dialogue on some of our world's most polarizing subjects, engage Gen Z in healthy and productive conversations, what it's like to raise a mixed family, and so much more. We hope today's conversation gives you some helpful tools to engage in balanced dialogue with those around you. Without further ado, here's your host, Renya Mancarios. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Balanced Voice Podcast. We're thrilled to have our guests coming in from Tennessee today, Lauren Pinkston. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am thrilled to have this conversation. You are um, the maker of the upwardly dependent uh, IG page. It's not maker, founder, creator, person <laughs> behind, an inspiration to so many. Yeah, it, uh, it, it was an accident, honestly, as most good, most good things are. Um, and as a bus- business professor, we teach our students, you don't really know what sticks until you really know your target market. And honestly, um, when I started sharing my life years ago and, and chose to name my page uh, Upwardly Dependent, it was at, in a season where I was living in, in Southeast Asia and I was really feeling undercover. I was doing some work that couldn't be shared online in a public space due to the nature of the work and and my intent to keep people safe. And so um, I really had my name kind of off the grid and it was a season where I really needed to rely on external sources of power to keep me pushing through because it was a really dark uh, work that I was involved in. So anyways, um, just started sharing my life that way and had a pretty tight knit, really uh, close community of followers there. And it's, it's blown up a little bit this year unexpectedly, but in a, in a good way. I think, I think what's so great about is, is it's blown up this year because you haven't been afraid to talk about really difficult things, but do it in an honest way. And, and many people run with headlines. We get upset, we get divided, 
And you've really taken the time to slow things down, to dive into critical issues. And I think that's what makes you so wonderful. It's a welcomed voice and a sea, what I keep saying, it's just become a sea of chaos. So before we talk about your travels around the world, and if you're allowed to share what you were doing in Asia and you know, you've done a lot globally, I want to take it back a little bit. You're a mom of three, you're mm-hmm. a teacher, you're mm-hmm. in Tennessee. Have you ever met Taylor Swift? Very important. Question. I haven't, but I I'm like one degree of separation from her. If 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 you ever want to call me Taylor, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I wish we were. I mean, are you legitimately one degree separation, or is this? I just- went to college with someone who went to excuse me who went to high school with her. Oh my gosh. We're all. Ta- it doesn't matter where you're from, how old, how young. We're all Taylor Swift fans at some degree. But um, talk about your your li- just a little bit of the background of your life and your story. Yeah, so I was always interested in international work. I was that kid who was just pouring through the National Geographics. Uh, when I was five, I remember telling my mom that uh, after seeing a picture of a child, it was during the, the drought in the Horn of Africa, um, that it was so unfair <laughs> that I had this beautiful house with everything I needed. And there were children just like me across the world that didn't have that. And parts of that guilt were unhealthy. But as I grew and developed that that sense of injustice always, always stuck around. And so that's really what led me to moving overseas in 2014, long-term uh, learning a language and really becoming engulfed in, in another way of life with another, another group of people and uh, worked in anti-trafficking field there and worked as well, developing businesses for, uh, for young men and women coming out of exploitative work situations and also developing economic opportunities for a persecuted, the persecuted church. And so now you're a professor um, in the area of business, business ethics, and a few other things. Talk to us a little bit about what you, you know, what your goal is in sort of educating a, a new generation of, of kids. Yeah. So if you talk to Generation Z very often, you'll see that there's a lot of frustration with capitalism. There's a a sense that capitalism is great, that it generates wealth, but if the wealthy just continue to hoard wealth and it's not distributed, then how can we justify the wealth that we're generating? And so really my goal in, in, in and teaching about business ethics is, is not throwing out capitalism, but holding it to account and just asking, how do we continue to use the philosophies of capitalism to then generate more wealth for everyone? And that doesn't mean a socialistic society as often it's called, um, but it can just mean leaning into our responsibility as citizens where we make sure that everyone has the right to life in, in every sense of the word through healthcare or through, um, through safe families or through safe work. So what does that look like? And, and those are the kinds of pictures that I try to paint for my students. It's such an interesting thing. We've spent a lot of time looking at Generation Z and, and all the different um, ways that they live. And they, you know, they, they're the first generation that's had social media in middle school. Um, they've been raised on, on these gadgets and it's created a very different culture and mm-hmm. identity uh, from you know, they take less risks. They're kind of afraid of everything. They're very, very idealistic in their thoughts. And I'm just thinking about when you were you were saying, you know, you grew up having a lot of empathy for others. Um, I think that's such a wonderful quality, and I wish more kids had that. What's interesting is, you know, when you look at Gen, Gen Z, when you look at capitalism, the idea is we have empathy for others, 
And the way we show that is we just give everything away. And I, and when you look in the business world, it doesn't always work that way. So I think it's an interesting conversation between how do you have empathy for others? How do you support nonprofits? How do you create nonprofits? You yourself created a nonprofit that's doing incredible things. You've traveled the world, you've worked with your hands, um, but also understand that the business world has to move and it has to thrive and it has to have certain rules and regulations. It's a sticky point. It's a rubbing point for a lot of these younger kids in this gen, in the Gen Z generation. Oh, 100%. And, and as a millennial, what I feel like we've done really well is just deconstructing things. And so we have, we've, we've spoken truth to power and we've told people what, what isn't working, but we've left the next generation with just a real big mess of crumbled ideas, feeling like we, you know, there's nothing, what do we have left? And so uh, I feel a a great responsibility that as millennials, we need to start building some things back up and show that we don't have to, we don't have to throw out everything that we relied on that gave us such comfort and wealth and affluence. Um, But we can, we can reform it and we can, we can do really good things with the, the underlying systems. We just need to transform them in order to work for every So you've been so great on your um, Instagram page about tackling these really difficult issues that are, you know, some of us are just afraid to talk about, you know, whether it's COVID or human trafficking or, you know, presidential administrations and what they're doing or not doing. I mean, we're literally afraid to address these topics because we may offend someone not not using the right word and 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 you've been so good about tackling these and i want to pull um a quote from your instagram page where you said quote there is a remnant of us who still desire longer conversation there's a remnant of us who wish to allow our neighbors to be human and we are protecting hospitable spaces to virtually wrestle through the tension of learning and unlearning Wherever you're coming from, you are welcomed here. I am not canceling people for disagreeing with me. If you're willing to listen, I'll be generous in sharing. I'm here to listen to you too. And I just sat and looked at the words for a minute because so few of us feel that way now. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, when you shared that, what was the response? And how did you, I mean, are you finding that more people resonate with that or is it, or is it upsetting to people? I really have been enamored by the people who have felt comfortable suddenly to come into my DMs and send me questions that they have and say, I just want to push back a little bit on what you said, because I feel like you're willing to hear me out. And so people who I very much may philosophically disagree with on a topic, were able to come in a space and If you allow people to know that you are a safe place, that you're not going to bark at them for disagreeing with you or presenting an alternate idea, then they're willing to share in in safety and security, knowing that you can rub on each other a little bit ideologically to then sharpen each other. And, And that's what I really feel we've we've lost politically, so, you know, socially, we've lost this ability to sharpen each other through our different ideas. And, and it's strength to be willing to change your mind on something because someone has presented an idea that you had never been exposed to before. And I want to foster every ounce of that that I can um, online. So do you think, do you attribute some of this to um, extremism and media uh, oh. You know, you, you've talked yeah. about like COVID vaccinations. I mean, you've put, you've talked about a lot. And so what, and you, you, again, you've touched on the fact that there, there are these really sensationalized pieces of 
information, that they're highly controversial, but you've broken them down and you've really used your best efforts to explain things in a, and based on fact and, and research and knowledge. Is that, you know, is that the push that you have to kind of clear up the chaos? Really? I'm new to, I'm new to the academic world in the sense that I just graduated with my PhD from Clemson University last, last fall. So just a year ago, almost I was sitting in my gown and my Tam and <laughs> getting ready to walk across the stage. And the president of, of Clemson University, who I respect greatly, looked down at all of us from the stage. And he said, you have a duty now because you have learned how to learn and it is your duty to share that process and that appreciation for academia with people around you and with the greater society. And, and I really was trying to avoid doing any more research in my life because I was so burned out from my dissertation, but it was that, that call and that push that, you know, when it got to be February, March, and there was such sensationalized, dramatic expressions of what was going on in the country, this search for truth and my practice and knowing how to actually read and look for academic articles or how to, how to weed through information to find truth. That was, that was really the push, I think. So what makes you so unique, unique, Lauren, is that you really have lived all over the world. You have this incredible family. Um, you're willing to talk about controversial issues in a very non-judgmental way. Uh, you know, I want to talk about one of your issues that is, is certainly near and dear to your heart, and that's the human trafficking on a local and global level. Uh, you've done work in this area. What can you share about what you've discovered, what you've seen, and some of the outcomes? Like almost everyone, I came to understand human trafficking from uh, the stories that were told from Hollywood or from nonprofits who were working in this space, trying to get a re- an emotional response from people uh, in order to generate donor dollars. And, and I was just like everyone else. The story was horrific. I was mortified by what I was learning that humans were experiencing today, you know, coming from a knowledge of the African slave trade to a realization that there are more slaves in our world today than ever before in human history. And so that launched me into a study of, of what that looks like. And I remember the first time that I interacted with survivors of human trafficking, it was almost this like sickening, but glorified, like, oh my goodness, you are the person, you are the population that I've been studying for so long, you know, and that was a very unhealthy way to engage with a 15 year old young woman who had experienced such tragic abuse. Because what I realized when I was talking and building relationships with these young women was they wanted to go to school. They liked to giggle about boys. They wanted to, to pursue a future in cosmetology or in medicine. And I had spent so much of my time victimizing them in my mind rather than looking at them and viewing them as individuals with, with skills and future and hope. And, and so that was a, the first ideological shift for me in my mind when, when that population became people who knew my name and spent time at my house and we shared meals together rather than um, a population that I just studied in order to know how to address an issue. And did you notice a difference in victimization, whether you were in the U.S. or Africa or Asia, whether in age or 
you know, their place in society, the role that they, the relationships they may have had with their families? Sure. So every country has different things that push or pull individuals into human trafficking. And so I was working in a particularly impoverished nation, the poorest country in Southeast Asia. And so the push and pull factors that I was dealing with were maybe different than the ones across the border. However, uh, we know that poverty is the greatest, the greatest factor that pushes or pulls people into uh, exploitative situations. And that can look like illegal you know, illegal migration that can look like um, socialized exploitation. And that's really the word that I like to use when we talk about women, especially um, minors who are pulled into exploitative work. And that can, you know, that can be in the sex industry, that can be in forced labor and factories. But most of these individuals, I, I would say this is the number one misunderstood uh, topic of human trafficking. Most individuals who are trafficked are not stolen from their homes. They're not in handcuffs. They have freedom to move around at, to an extent, but they have been socialized to exploit themselves. And so it's the culture that they are in that says your greatest value is to provide money for your family. Even if you're 12, you know, it is, it is more honorable for you to take a job in a brothel than it is for you to refuse to do that in order to give to your family. And, and that's a, a misconception that we have in, in cultures that are different than, than individualistic cultures like we know of in the United States. So where would you, was that something you'd see like in Africa or Asia? Because that just seems so outside of the norm of some of these cultures where family, family reputation is such a big deal and um, purity for marriage is such a big deal. I mean, that just seems so in the face of all of that. Well, when you look at traditionally very uh, conservative cultures where women are expected to dress very modestly or where, like you said, purity is, is so upheld, you'll find that that's, those are the nations that have the highest levels of incest and sexual promiscuity as well. And so the, 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 greater, the, the, the greater the conservatism in a country, also the greater uh, the, the, the sexual promiscuity. And so, you know, when, when you are looking at that, Countries may present themselves culturally with a certain set of values, but the way that it's implemented on the ground, there's so much that people don't talk about in collectivist societies. So as Americans, this is really hard for us to understand when we're going and working in places like North Africa, East Africa, Southeast Asia, um, and, and even parts of South America where cultures function in a collectivist model in, in, in community rather than in individualism. And I watched so many volunteers come and engage with the young women that I was working with and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what are your dreams? And I, it was such a harmful question to ask, which is shocking to so many of us from the United States, because that's what we were raised to, to ask ours, you know, you can do anything. But in the culture where I was working, the, the dads would tell the young women what they would do when they grow up. And if the dads didn't tell them, then the government would tell them. And so just because you wanted to go to medical school, that didn't mean you got to go to medical school. Um, and, and so sometimes in our attempt to pursue freedom, we forget to ask what does freedom mean in yeah. this culture? And, and, and that's a really, really pivotal question to that's, ask, especially when you're pursuing justice. Oh, that's such a big point because freedom is defined very much by the culture um, that one is living in. And for us, it means something. And for somebody else, it means something totally different. Um, so I think that's such a, 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 an important comment. 
Um, so when you're traveling all over the world, are you traveling specifically for work? Is it like missionary work? Is it undercover work? Did you bring your ch- kids with you? Because um, I believe you guys just moved back to the States not too long ago. Right. We moved back last spring. Um, so I, I did get asked that question a lot. Are you taking your kids with you? Um, I, I'm very much motivated by my faith and not in the sense that I want to, to colonize societies uh, with Christianity, but in the sense that I have found so much freedom in Christ, using the word freedom here. Um, but I have, I have been so, so richly given peace because of the God that I serve, that that is absolutely what compels me and motivates me um, to do the work that I do. Um, but we were very vocational in our work abroad. So we moved our family overseas, like I said, in 2014, and, and we were working in different capacities with different nonprofits. Uh, my husband is a medical doctor, so he ended up working in a, in a Thai clinic there, seeing patients just vocationally actually making money while we were there. Um, I did a little stint at the UN and an internship. And um, so there's different types of learning, but we, we moved our family there and we found our visas there. And then we just dug into life and in the, in the community and the society and spent, I, I was speaking Lao about 90% of my day and working completely in another language. And, and that had become home. Um, so it was not expected to move back. There were a lot of things that brought us back here unexpectedly, but um, now that we're here, I, I really want to dedicate my work to helping other people find their pathways to cross-cultural work, but in a way that that is completely marinated in relationship. You've um, founded an incredible nonprofit called the Kindred Exchange. It promotes sustainable, empathetic, and authentic cross-cultural engagement. What do you? How do you hope to see this? thrive here in the U.S.? We as Americans have the privilege of disposable income often to travel and see parts of the world that are exotic, that are fascinating. But what we do unintentionally with our travel is sometimes robbing people even more of their affluence and their status. Um, And I watched it regularly within the mission community. Unfortunately, I watched it regularly, even within the nonprofit world, where we continue to disenfranchise populations through charitable work. And so what, what I hope to do through Kindred Exchange and what our goal is, is that we can, we can provide a pathway for people to engage cross-culturally, but to give them the tools that they need to be able to engage through relationships that we have connected them with or, or through, um, through just frameworks of engagement that, that really honor cultures, honor the sovereignty of different nations and honor the, the status that individuals have in, in communities that we've never, we've never been into before. So rather than assuming what, what people don't have, um, encouraging people to assume the agency that's already there and that, that people um, inherently hold. So you're raising this um, really beautiful family, two girls and a boy. You have one adopted daughter. Is that the older or the middle? She's the oldest. She's we adopted oldest. out of birth order. <laughs> okay. Um, talk to us about what has it been like living with um, a mixed family, a beautiful family, both here in the U.S. where racial tensions are super high, um, but also all over, all over the world. It's really hard to talk about international adoption without 
um, being very honest about the corruption that exists within international adoption, the great potential of actually trafficking an orphan unintentionally to your home culture. And so I want to just be very clear that those were things that were very much on our mind when we traveled to Uganda and when we were matched with, with the daughter that we now have. And uh, it's incredibly important to trace um, every opportunity that was sought to re- reunite um, children with their birth families and every opportunity to keep them in their host culture. Um, we have done done what we can to bring Ugandan culture into our home, but it's it's a challenge. Um, and and there's not a day that goes by we've we've had uh, our daughter in our home now for four and a half years, and there's not a day that's gone by that we haven't mourned the loss of her language and her culture and her identity in that. And I don't think we talk enough in the adoption world about the hard losses that come with adoption because we see the beautiful videos of children getting a forever family, but we, we don't come back three weeks later, six months later, four years later, and continue to have the conversation about the loss that exists and what recovering from, from the trauma of losing your birth home and your birth family really means. And so we, um, yeah, that's been a, a, a so serious you, part. But of how, our do family. You, how do you grapple with that? Because I mean, the Uganda, the country itself is so far away. It's not easy to just go there often. And then the culture is so different. So how do you, how do you connect that for her? We have had to be so intentional about building relationships outside of what comes naturally to us in our social networks. So actively seeking out uh, Ugandans who live close to us, actively seeking out relationships with uh, other families who have adopted from Uganda, um, actively seeking out opportunities to engage with, with people who are going to really give our daughter what we cannot give her. Um, she needs racial mirrors in her life that can speak into the experience she's having outside the walls of our home. She needs, she needs strong men and women who understand her, her reality and her, um, her story in a way that I will never be able to. And as a mom to realize that I cannot give her everything that she needs, I'm going to do my best to, to be everything I can for her, but she needs a community outside of me as well. And um, it takes context a conscious effort to, to build those relationships into your social network. I think adoption is one of the most beautiful things. And we look at adoptive parents, the struggle, um, at least in the U S even it's, it's not easy to go through the process of adoption. There's a lot of emotional highs and lows. Uh, There's of course the birth rights of the parents. There's just a lot that goes into it. And sometimes you forget the child, you know, the fact that, your focus is, well, this child is going to go into the best possible placement for them, but they're still children and they don't fully understand sort of the moving parts and that the ultimate place that they may wind up is actually better for them than where they may have been coming from. So I love the fact that you're diving into that and embracing it and talking about the difficulties that are really real. A dear friend of mine adopted two kids, siblings, and, um, you know, she says it's there. There are good days. They're really hard days. They um, have a different cultural background than her and her husband, and so there's a lot of figuring out how the pieces come together. And ultimately, it's the best thing for the child. It's the best thing for the family, but it is hard. 
Right. And, and if we're committed, if we're really committed to our children, then we're willing to lay down what, uh, what we feel like we need and, and to know, and sometimes it's an honest cognitive shift for me where I have to lean into my cognitive power more than my emotional power to say, you know, you're, you don't like me. You don't love me right now. You don't even like me. And, and that's, that's just okay. Because if I'm keeping you safe and I am fostering your health and your healing, then one day, maybe you'll, you'll see what I'm, what I'm hoping for and what I'm praying for you. But I don't, I don't need that right now because you don't go to someone who's hurting and, ask for affirmation, right? You affirm them in their moment of, of need and of healing. And so, um, yeah, that it's, that's the role I think of adoptive parents to foster, foster that healing. So you see this whole child emerging. You know, we don't have much more time with you, but I'm curious. I know that you're also, we started by talking about the fact that you are, you are a professor, you're teaching. And, um, what has that been like during COVID? (laughs) Well, Uh, we are we are back on campus, and my university has done an incredible job of getting us back on campus. But to teach to an entire lecture hall of spaced out students with face coverings, uh, you don't get much nonverbal feedback. And so I'm having to dig deep to really find my confidence as a public speaker <laughs> um, because the the nonverbal cues are not there, which I rely on heavily. So um, I, I think we're cracking the code this week. We're we're six weeks in, but it's it's been it's been a challenge for sure. It's like the most interesting thing on earth. And for, as a mom of three myself, we always appreciated our teachers. I'm one of those, I know it's like, and I'm talking elementary school, but it is a very difficult job. They are um, certainly overworked in my opinion and, and every, you know, always underpaid in my opinion, in terms of how much they carry as these elementary school teachers. We talk Mm -hmm. about keeping our kids safe. If something were to happen. Now we're talking about keeping them safe from COVID. I mean, there's just so much, the bullying, the cyber, like there's just so much that we place on these teachers. Um, And when COVID hit last March and all of a sudden I had my three kids at home and I was the one that had to go through worksheets A, B, and C with each of them. I was like, God bless every teacher across this country, period. (laughs) We should be, mom should be marching for teachers every day, everywhere, because, you know, obviously you're in a completely different level dealing with college level students, but it is, it is tough on every level and you have such a big task and job uh, in front of you. It's the future that we're fighting for. So I actually taught fourth grade for a few years. So I, I, and I flunked out as a homeschool mom. So I, (laughs) I, I, I completely agree with you and I am buying regular coffee gift cards for, for our teachers because I, I just want to caffeinate them as much as possible because I know how tired they are. So tell us before we wrap up, what are you hoping that people will get out of your Instagram page? What are you hoping the, the viewer will walk away with? I really hope that people are able to find strength in themselves and in their ideas. I hope that I can model a way to have conversations in non-abrasive ways that really help our 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 relationships strengthen through the ideas that we have. Um, but we've lost this art of how to communicate. And um, so as an Enneagram 8 myself, if there's any Enneagram fans out there, um, this has been a struggle for me and a journey. Um, but I really would love for people to come and engage on really 
challenging topics that we depend on that inform our policies, that inform our communities, but to do it in a way that that values everyone's experiences at the table and really tries to shake out what what's true that we can hold on to in a way that that honors everyone in the room. And I think what's so great, if you go to upwardly dependent, um, you know, Lauren has a highlight button on Obama versus Trump, you know, when it comes to the handling of trafficking, book recommendations, save the children, trafficking, police, um, race, obviously COVID response. I mean, you literally are not shying away from anything, but you've (laughs) just been so graceful. I mean, I've read most of your comments, most of your posts, and have seen a lot of balanced conversations that are taking place um, with a lot of grace, which I think we desperately need right now. Thank you. I, I agree. And the, our, our political system is a little derailed. And uh, this, is the, this is the downside of a two-party system where you have to really dig your heels in and be committed to your side if you uh, want to, to push it forward, or that's the misconception that a lot of people hold. And I just think that what creates so much strength in our nation is what our founding fathers believed that when you ascribe to a creed or ascribe to a political party more than you ascribe to the process of thought and uh, and practice of thought, then then we lose a lot of the power of our democracy. So I just want to fight fight for democracy as much as I can because I've lived in countries that are not democracies and I see what happens when when we don't have have that value. So that's 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 the push. Literally, that's a takeaway statement for every single person listening today. And Lauren, we thank you so much for being with us on the Balanced Voice podcast. We will be following you and uh, we definitely look forward to having you back another time. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for what you do. See you next time. Bye, everybody. If you missed anything from the show, check out the show notes at thebalancedvoicepodcast.com. This episode was edited and mixed by the team at Real News PR. Our executive producer is Sydney Zyker. Our advising producer is Katie Meyer. Our media and quality assurance director is Tanya Cruz. And finally, our creative design director is Elizabeth McChesney. To find out more information about Crime Stoppers of Houston or to get involved with our prevention programming, please visit us at crime-stoppers.org. You can find us on Instagram at The Balanced Voice Podcast. You can find me online at The Run Your Report.